Well, good evening again. For those of you who are new here, my name's Luke. I'm one of the pastors here at Redeemer Lane, and it's my privilege to preach from this passage this evening. At Redeemer, we believe that the Bible is God's Word, and that means that every verse of Scripture is inspired by God, and it's profitable for just this, for teaching, for correction, for training in righteousness. And so we preach through books of the Bible, and we do it so that we can hear from God himself. So in light of having just heard from God's word, let's go to God in prayer and ask him for help as we look at his word. Lord, thank you for this passage, Lord. We thank you that you are the one who gave it to us, and Lord, we pray that you would incline our hearts to your statutes and not to foolish gain. Lord, that you would open our eyes to behold wondrous things in your word. Lord, our hearts can be so divided, thinking of all the things that need to get done. And Lord, we pray that you would unite our hearts this evening under your word to fear your name. And Lord, having heard from you, that you would satisfy us with your steadfast love. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Many people can live as if the gospel is simply restricted to the spiritual areas of our lives. That the gospel affects the way that we pray, it affects the way that we go to church, and it affects how we get to heaven. But beyond that, it kind of stays in its own self-contained area, and we can live the rest of our lives like the world around us. This is treating the gospel like it is oil in water. If you've ever seen oil in water, like in salad dressing or something like that, the oil stays nice by itself, a little blob floating around in the water, where the rest of the, the real life, the water, is able to kind of be completely untouched, but that oil makes sure that we get to heaven when we die. The reality, though, is that the gospel is not like oil in water. The gospel is like food coloring in water. If you take a drop of food coloring and you drop it into a glass of water, given enough time, that drop of food coloring won't stay by itself. It will spread. It will flow to the whole cup, and it will color it gospel-colored. The good news of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection doesn't just merely deal with the spiritual areas of our life, how we pray, how we come to church, how we get to heaven. It deals with every area of our lives. It affects literally everything about us, including the way we navigate the most difficult of earthly relationships. Like food coloring in a glass of water, the gospel can't be contained. It spreads. And in doing so, affects the whole glass. In the passage that Nicole just read for us, 1 Timothy 6, 1 through 2, we see how the gospel ought to affect the way that bondservants, slaves, relate to their earthly masters. We are in a section here that's concerned about honoring people. So if you go back to chapter 5, we see that widows are supposed to be honored, either honored by their family members who are providing for them, or if they have no family, honored by the church. We see that elders who rule well are to be honored. And here we see that bond servants are to honor 
their earthly masters, to regard them as worthy of all honor. And here's the main thing that we're going to see this evening. The gospel shapes our human relationships around the glory of God and the bride of Christ. The gospel takes our human relationships and it colors them, it shapes them around the glory of God and the bride of Christ. And to see this, we're going to see two points. Bond servants and masters, it's the first relationship that we're going to look at, and then believers and beloved. So first, let's look at bond servants and masters. Paul begins these verses, what we just heard, by regarding the general situation of how do Christian bond servants relate to their earthly masters in this life. Look at verse 1. Let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching of God may not be reviled. The word bondservant here in the ESV, some of your translations, I'm sure, have the word slave. Right? That's because this word comes from the Greek word doulos, which means slave. Paul is writing to the people who are lowest in society here, the people who are slaves. And one of the things that this shows us and this reminds us is that when we look back at the first century church, the first century church was not made up only of powerful, influential people. There were people from the lowest in society who were part of it. Some of you may walk into church and you may come to church as a way of increasing your standing in the social ladder. So in your community, it's respected to go to church, and so you go to church. Or you come to church because you need a job, and you're looking to kind of network with other believers and get yourself up higher in society. Chances are, if you were to walk into a first century church, you wouldn't increase your chances of moving up the social ladder you would increase your chances of moving down the social ladder because of who you would be rubbing shoulders with. Now, there were wealthy believers, but the prevalence of the New Testament teaching on how slaves and masters ought to relate to each other shows that this church was made up of servants, of people who were low. And Paul tells us so much this. He tells us this in 1 Corinthians. He says, "'Consider your calling, brothers,' Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. Some of you were, but not many. (laughs) Most of you were not. These churches were made up of those who were low in society. And what does Paul command these bondservants, these slaves? What does he tell them to do? He tells them to regard their masters as worthy of honor. How can Paul write this? I mean, from a modern Christian's perspective, as we approach a text like this, we may even feel a little bit of embarrassment here. How can Paul, an apostle, inspired by the Holy Spirit, tell Christian slaves to honor their masters? Is this just evidence that the Bible is a product of a less enlightened, less progressive time? No, it's not. We'll come back in a moment to why Paul says, honor 
your masters. But before I do, I want to walk quickly through what the Bible teaches about slavery itself. It is true. The, the Bible, both the Old Testament and the New Testament, were written in the context of slavery. Slavery was assumed in the Old Testament time and in the New Testament time. For most of human slavery, slavery has been the norm. Or for most of human history, slavery has been the norm. But just because the Bible was written in a context that assumes slavery and shows how to navigate within that context in a way that honors God and loves other people doesn't mean that the Bible endorses or condones slavery. In fact, the teaching of Scripture not only shows slaves and masters how to operate within this fallen, sinful structure, not only shows them how to operate within it, but it actually, the teaching of Scripture, lays a foundation in order to bring the whole system of slavery down. It undermines the entire system. For example, it was wrong to kidnap, the Bible teaches, it was wrong to kidnap and sell someone as a slave. So it's wrong to go and steal somebody and sell them as a slave. Exodus 21, whoever steals a man and sells him, and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. So the African slave trade that consisted of man-stealing and selling, wrong, according to the Bible, right out. It was wrong that it happened. It was wrong that Christians endorsed it. They were going against the clear teaching of the Scripture. So most of the slavery that's assumed in the Old Testament is prisoner of war slavery. These are peoples who have been captured as the spoils of war. But even these slaves were to be treated with dignity, with honor. They weren't supposed to be physically beaten or hurt. Exodus 21 later on says, When a man strikes the eye of his slave, male or female, and destroys it, he should let the slave go free because of his eye. If he knocks out the tooth of his slave, male or female, he should let the slave go free because of his tooth. Don't beat your slaves. Don't hurt your slaves. Treat your slaves with honor and dignity in this fallen system. And in the New Testament especially, we see that slaves are to be treated as brothers in Christ. Equal standing before God with their master. The book of Philemon is a very, very short book. And yet it gives us a significant way that we see the gospel working itself out in this fallen system. Paul sends Onesimus, a runaway slave, back to his Christian master, Philemon, after Onesimus has come to faith in Christ. And this is what Paul exhorts Philemon. He says, this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you may have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh, you are an image bearer of God. You are brothers in the human race, but also in the Lord. So Philemon is supposed to regard Onesimus as his brother in Christ, as someone whom he will be with forever, as a family member. We'll see this more in verse 2 of our passage. 
slaves and masters are family members. And masters are not independent. Masters themselves are slaves. Colossians 4 says, Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly. Why? Knowing that you also have a master in heaven. So masters, you're not free from slavery. You yourself are a bondservant of God. You have a master in heaven as well. So treat your servants the way that your heavenly master would want you to. And if this were not enough, Paul himself taught that slaves should seek their own freedom. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, Were you a bondservant when you were called? Do not be concerned about it. I think what he's getting at there is, your being a bondservant doesn't make you less of a Christian or less of a person. But then he says, But if you can, give an, if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself to this opportunity. John Piper helps us to see how all this teaching fits together. He says this, the upshot of all of this is that without explicitly prohibiting slavery, right, you will not find a verse in the Bible that says to own slaves is sin. But without explicitly prohibiting slavery, Paul has pointed the church away from slavery because it is an institution which is incompatible with the way the gospel works in people's lives. Far from seeing slavery as good and acceptable, the Bible lays out principles that show the gospel and slavery, they don't go together. It's a shame that so many Christians throughout the centuries failed to see this. But that's the fault of Christians. That's not the fault of God's word. And there's one thing that I want you to walk away from this evening. We are messed up people as human beings but we can base our lives on this book. And the Bible itself undermines the system of slavery and its teaching. Okay, so coming back to our passage. Why does Paul tell Christian slaves to regard their own masters as worthy of honor? He gives us the reason. So that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Paul calls Christian slaves to honor their earthly masters so that God is honored and the Christian faith is not reviled. Their honoring of their masters was a way of bringing honor to the Lord. Now you can imagine how the situation would play out. You have a slave who becomes a Christian. He understands the privilege of his heavenly inheritance. He understands that his earthly master is no better before the eyes of God than he is. He imagines and recognizes that he has been adopted as a child of God, a son of the King Almighty. Immediately, there is going to be a temptation to disrespect his earthly master, to be unsubmissive and to be rude. You can't ask me what to do. Do you know who I am? I'm a king. I'm a son of a king. Princes, they don't wait tables. They don't wash feet. They don't do dishes. Do you know who I am? That's going to be going on in his heart. There's going to be that temptation. But if this happened, 
What sort of reputation would that have for the watching world? How would the watching world think of the king if his children behaved in this way to those who are in earthly authority over them? I mean, just think of life here in the UAE. Christians, we may say, rightly, that we have, from the Bible, rights and obligations and duties that we are free to perform. And that is absolutely true. But if doing those things, we were disrespectful and rude to the governing officials over us, then what would the reputation of the church be here? How would people be viewing the church? The early church had a reputation of being the best citizens, of being the ones who cared for those who were thrown off. It's one thing for people to shame us and to despise us because of the gospel. It's another for people to shame us and despise us because we're rude or disrespectful or unsubmissive. If we were to go about this in the UAE, how would this testify to the character of God to those around us? The reality is that the way in which we relate to those who are in authority over us, whom God has placed in authority on this earth over us, whether it's our employer, a local government, or an earthly master, the way in which we relate to these persons is a way in which we uphold the honor of God and the truthfulness of Christian doctrine. So many of us think that God is honored when we are powerful and when we are in control. God gets the glory when we get the job that we want. God gets the glory when our savings account booms and our comfort and our security is there. God gets the glory when we get the desires that we have. We need to drive the nice cars and have the fancy homes. Often, however, God gets the glory when we respond in faith and kindness and compassion, even when we are weak and frail and despised in the eyes of the world. That's what shows how glorious God is. That this person can go through this situation trusting the Lord, respecting the Lord, because it's his glory that they seek. The gospel transformed the way that slaves related to their earthly masters, showing honor and respect, because the gospel shows where true honor comes from. Slaves and masters, neither of them has inherent honor in and of themselves. Earthly masters are not inherently more honorable because they're the ones who are in control. And slaves are not inherently more dishonorable because they are low in society. In the gospel, true honor comes from Christ. Christ is the one who earns glory and honor for his people. By his obedience, being faithful unto death, he has a righteous standing before God. And when we turn to him in faith, it doesn't matter whether we are high or low in society. Christ gives us his very honor, his very righteousness. He clothes us with it. So we stand before God unashamed, glorious, not because of what we've done, but because of Christ. And rather than making us proud or arrogant or unsubmissive, it frees us. It frees us to not seek the honor that this world has to offer because we are content in the glory and honor and status 
that we have received from God. And so we live, whether high or whether low, we live in a way that shows that God is the most honorable above all else. The gospel shapes the way that masters and slaves relate to each other in the early church by shaping it around the glory of God and the honor that he freely bestows through Christ's righteousness. And this leads to our second relationship that we'll see this evening, believers and beloved. Believers and beloved. In verse 2, Paul moves from the general practice of how earthly slaves were to regard their earthly masters to the specific situation of how Christian slaves were to regard their Christian masters. Look at verse 2. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better, since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. Teach and urge these things. Here, as in verse 1, we see another temptation that Paul heads off for Christian slaves. If the temptation in verse 1 is for a Christian slave to disrespect his earthly master by looking at the status that he has in God, the temptation in verse 2 is for Christian slaves to disrespect their believing earthly masters on the fact that they are mutual family members. After all, we're brothers and sisters in Christ. You're no better than me. If any of you have seen the way that siblings relate to one another, you can get this temptation. But this misses a key aspect of how the gospel transforms our relationships. When we are saved into the family of God, we receive an equal standing and an equal status before God. Masters were no higher in rank than slaves. Paul puts it this way in Galatians 3. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. To be in Christ is to have an equal standing with Christ's people. Our righteousness, as we covered in the last point, our righteousness, our standing, our honor is Christ's. And so if you are in Christ, you have that standing. But this doesn't mean that all distinctions are eliminated. Men are still men. Women are still women. Jews are different than Greeks. And slaves have different responsibilities than those who are free. The gospel doesn't remove these distinctions. Instead, the gospel shows within these distinctions, what does it look like to live in a God-honoring way that loves those around you to the fullest? The people of God are made up of different ethnic, cultural, genders, and socioeconomic backgrounds. When you join Redeemer as a member, we don't ask you to put off your culture and join a third culture. We don't ask you to stop being Nigerian or to stop being American or to stop being Welsh. That's for Gareth. He's the Welshman. We don't ask you to stop being that. What we ask is that the gospel would work itself out in your Nigerian culture, in your American culture. 
We don't ask people to stop being men or stop being women. We remain men and women. Nigerians, Filipinos, Ugandans, Indians, Pakistanis, South Africans, Americans. In our church, we have doctors and we have laborers. We have teachers and we have students. We have fathers and mothers, children and adults. And our church, I would argue, is better for these distinctions. I think a church that has these distinctions shows the way the gospel creates a space where people can relate to one another across these distinctions. The way that we can operate and live within our cultures, in our genders, in our vocations, in a way that magnifies Christ and is what our culture, our gender, our vocation was called and created to be. The Holy Spirit, through the gospel, empowers us to seek God's pleasure and to love those around us in all of our backgrounds, in all of our differences. We see in the second half of verse 2 how the gospel did this in the master and the slave relationship. It says, those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground they are brothers. Rather, they must serve them all the better. Why? Since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. Rather than taking advantage of the mutual status in Christ, believing slaves should serve their believing masters all the better. Why? Because their diligent service benefits a family member. It benefits a loved one. When we do things for those that we care about, we should do it as an expression of our love. The righteous standing that God gives believers through the gospel sets the stage for us to be faithful servants and to serve our fellow believers. Rather than fueling disrespect, it motivates honor because we're doing it for family members, those who are loved. And notice that Paul doesn't say, he doesn't just say, I should say, the reason why Christian slaves should do this with their Christian masters is because you're family. Some of us have family. Some of us may not love our family that we have, and we can feel like we are doing this out of a sense of duty or a sense of obligation. Yes, you're right. I need to speak kindly to my brother because we're family. But if he wasn't family, man, you, you would not want to know the sort of things that I would say to him. Paul moves to the heart of the matter. Believing masters are both members of the family, and what does it say? And beloved. They are loved. This is not merely duty. It is delight. Can you see the transforming power of the gospel here? What other message allows for slaves to genuinely love their earthly masters, to view their earthly masters as beloved family members, both beloved by God and their beloved. If you're here tonight and you're not from a Christian background, or if you're here tonight and you spend a lot of time with people who aren't from Christian backgrounds, then you need to know that this is why the church is one of the most powerful witnesses to the truth of the gospel. 
the church is not a place that you go to worship. It's not like a mosque. It's not like a temple. It's not a building. The church is a people. It is a family of believers. A family of believers who are beloved by God and beloved by each other. Regardless of our culture, regardless of how much money we make, regardless of what we can give to one another, we are beloved by God Almighty and by his people. We see this in John 3, 16. God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. And then 1 John 3, see what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called the children of God, and so we are. We don't earn our way into God's love. We don't earn our way into the Christian family. It comes by faith. It comes by turning from our sin and trusting in Jesus. And because we don't earn the love from God, we also don't seek to earn the love from our believers who are in the church. And as believers, we don't demand that people earn love from us. The love that the Father has shapes the way that we relate to one another. So we see people through the lens of the gospel that everywhere we look, we see people who are loved by God and therefore loved by God's people. We see each other as believers and beloved. This doesn't mean that loving our fellow Christians comes easily or naturally. I mean, can you imagine how many Christian slaves over the centuries were aware of what the Bible taught, saw the teaching of the Bible, and how it undermined the system of slavery, and wish that their earthly masters would see it. Wish that their fellow believers who are earthly masters over them would see the teaching and set them free. And yet, in that context, the gospel allowed those Christians to supernaturally love believers who had not earned their love by any good deed that they have done. There are things about Christians that makes us hard to love. But this is why it's so important to come back to the gospel over and over and over again in the way that we relate to one another. Because we're reminded that our love for each other, it's not grounded in what we have done for each other. Our love for each other is grounded in what God has done for us in sending his own son to die for sinners in order that we might be made one family and one people. So often we get it backwards. <laughs> I can feel this. So often we can be more loving towards those who are outside the church, and we are harsher to those who are inside the church because they ought to know better. Our fellow Christians have the Bible. You ought to be able to get this. And I understand that temptation. You can pick your social, your political, your cultural, your theological issue, Rather than serving our brothers, we often become the quickest critics of our brothers and condemn them all the more. But when we do that, what we're doing is we're actually undermining the teaching of the gospel and how we relate to one another. This doesn't mean that we don't plead with each other to repent of our sin. This doesn't mean that we don't teach what the Bible clearly teaches and call people to change. 
This doesn't mean that we're willing to have hard conversations with those who are over us. But it does mean that in doing so, we do so from a heart of love, with compassion and respect, showing honor to those who hear us because of the honor that God has shown us. And here we see how these verses challenge all of us, whether you're the highest in society or whether you're the lowest in society. Do our words and our thoughts towards our fellow believers reveal supernatural love, or do they reveal worldly hatred? Do our actions towards our fellow believers, does it flow from a heart of compassion, shaped by the gospel, captivated by the glory of Christ, or is it a sense of duty and of obligation? Do we relate to one another across genders, across cultural backgrounds, across socioeconomic status in a way that shows that the gospel is shaping the church, the gospel is shaping our relationships, and not the world. Redeemer, the gospel cannot be contained to any area of life partitioned off for the spiritual stuff. (laughs) The beauty of the gospel is that when you believe it, the Holy Spirit takes it and it works itself through you. It will spread. And it must spread to every area and every relationship of our lives, both inside and outside the church. My prayer is that God would be pleased, that Redeemer would be marked by relationships that are shaped by the gospel, that have the glory of God and the good of God's people at the center, because we recognize the way the gospel frees us to love each other and to love those around us as well. Let's pray. Lord God, we recognize that, I recognize, that even as we reflect upon these words, we have so often failed, which is another reminder of the great news of the gospel, that we are forgiven of our sins by Christ. And so, Lord, having been forgiven having been given honor. I pray that you would help us to love one another sincerely from a pure heart as you would have us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand as we respond to God's word through singing.